Well, good morning. Please join me in standing for the reading of God's Word this morning in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 is where we will begin, and I will read all the way down through verse 41. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through verse 41. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many more words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Every four years... We are treated to the spectacle of the national spectacle of a presidential election. And every four years, a good number of our population here in the United States is greatly disappointed because their candidate did not succeed in gaining the office. 
it, it, it amazes me every four years how much attention, how much hope is placed upon this election. Every four years we see it. The last several elections we've seen some amazing things. This last election, what what a show. What what a mess. Every four years people place their hopes and their dreams, their expectations upon a man, upon a candidate. In four years, every four years, there are promises made, there are campaign slogans, there are all types of messages proclaimed, place your hope in me and I will make the changes that you want to see. Every four years. And every four years, people fall for it. Why is that? Why is it? Why do people rejoice as if the kingdom has come? Why do people weep as if all hope is lost every four years? Because in every one of our hearts, in every heart of every person on the face of the earth, beats a desire, a desire for a kingdom. In every human heart that has ever lived upon the face of this earth, there is a desire for a kingdom. There is a hopeful expectation toward the future. Someone or something will come and will answer all of our problems. Will put an end to all of our trials. They will be the answer to what we're looking for. A hopeful hopeful expectation. Last week in the sermon application prompts, I just put the simple question, what is the importance of your view of the kingdom? Why is your view of the kingdom important Why is it important how you see the kingdom? Because your dreams, your hopes, your fears, your affections, your desires are wrapped up with what you view the kingdom to be. Every single one of us has a hopeful expectation for something, for something to come and answer the problems and the trials and the questions of our life. And all of us are the same in that. What is it? This is, this is the question, if you wanted to put it in different words. What is it in this life that excites you? What is it that thrills you? What is it that causes you fear? What is it that gives you anxiety? What's the source of your despair? All of these questions 
are tied back to what our heart treasures. Where our heart places its hope and its hopeful expectation. All of these questions are tied to what we view the kingdom to be. Israel had an expectation for a kingdom. They had an expectation that had been given to them by God himself for a kingdom to come. Remember how we define the kingdom very simply. And I know there's a lot of different pieces we can add into this definition, but I've defined it on purpose very simply. God's kingdom is defined thus. God's rule through his king. God rules through a mediator, his king. So God's kingdom is God's rule through his king in the midst of his people, over his people. And his people will fill the earth. Do you remember what he told Adam and Eve in the garden? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Adam was his king. He, he was desiring to mediate his rule through Adam. And his rule was going to extend to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is exactly what he told Noah. He told Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a nation. And your family will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. God's kingdom, through his king, has always been aimed at global rule, a global kingdom. And Peter, Peter in this sermon we looked at last week, the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 has been poured out. And Peter is saying to this people, the Holy Spirit has been poured out as Joel has prophesied and you are seeing the kingdom come right before your eyes. The kingdom has come. And God is making a people for himself. Well then that, that begs the question or that presents the question, who then is the king? If God's rule is mediated through a king, over his people, which will fill the earth. Who is the king? And that is the point of Peter's sermon. The message of the kingdom focuses, aims at the identity of the king. And that identity, the proclamation of who is the rightful king, has implications for all of our lives because his rule, his rule will include all the earth. And it demands a response. There is an appropriate response to this message of the king. And this is what Peter gives us in Acts chapter 2. He identifies for us the king. He gives us the implication of that message. And he gives us the right response to that message, which we all need to hear. This morning... Let's look first at the message of the kingdom. Who is the king? Well, if you look there in your text, 
verse 36 makes the message very plain. Look at verse 36. Will you there in Acts chapter 2, verse 36? This is the message. This is the main idea. I tell my students, you you need, when you're teaching, you need to have a teaching idea. This is Peter's teaching idea. This is his big idea. This is what he wants you to go away with. Here it is, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. Remember, he's writing to Theophilus to give him certainty. Let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Christ being the name Messiah or the title Messiah. Christ, Messiah, King. So here is the message of the kingdom. God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. I mentioned a moment ago the elections every four years. Have you ever heard somebody say, have you ever heard somebody say, my vote is for Jesus. You ever heard somebody say that? And I appreciate that sentiment. You know, I don't vote Republican. I don't vote Democrat. My vote is for Jesus. I appreciate that sentiment, but I have news for you. You don't need to vote for Jesus. Because God has already chosen Jesus. He's already been chosen. He's already been appointed. He already sits on the throne. God has made him both Lord and Christ. And this is the message that he gives to the people of Israel. They had an expectation for the kingdom. and And Peter says, that expectation for the kingdom, the king has already been declared. Look at how he argues this. Starting in verse 22, men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Remember last week I said the Lord, if anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I said the, the, the name has been given and it is the name of Jesus. The Lord has been acknowledged, has been proclaimed. His name is Jesus. Men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Look at Peter's first argument. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. You see that there? He says, Jesus has been declared to be both Lord and Christ. God has made him both Lord and Christ, and you already know this. How do you know this? Because he he accomplished many mighty works and signs and wonders through him in your midst. In other words, they already know the answer to who is the rightful king. Because God, by his mighty works, demonstrated that Jesus was his chosen king. The term mighty works, we ran across that last week when it said that in many tongues they declared the mighty works of God. 
phrase mighty works refers to these works of God in salvation history. The mighty works. Really, if you're looking at the Old Testament, it's the history of Israel. How God has made a people and rescued a people and, and saved a people for his glory. He, he does this by mighty works that he accomplishes. And when Jesus comes, he, through Jesus, accomplishes many mighty works. And anybody in Israel should have looked and said, God is saving us in this man because he does many mighty works. This is the answer. Jesus is the king. That should have been their response, but it wasn't. That wasn't their response. You yourselves know, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This Jesus was delivered over by God's sovereign will. By the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God has put him forth by his sovereign will. He was attested to you by mighty works. He was delivered over by God's definite plan and foreknowledge. And what did they do? You crucified and killed this one who was attested to you by God, who was put forth by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And here we see a beautiful, a beautiful parallel here. Don't miss this. God has by His sovereign will acted. He has put forward Christ as the King by His definite plan and foreknowledge. He has delivered Him up by His sovereign will. And yet man is responsible for their sinful choice. What did they do? They crucified Him. They killed Him. The one that God had attested in their midst, delivered over by His sovereign plan, they crucified and killed. But what did God do? See Here you see God's acts and man acts. What did, what, did, what did God do? They crucified and killed Him, but what? God raised Him up. Jesus is the King. He was attested in your midst by many mighty works and you crucified him, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, verse 24, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was not possible. Why, Peter? Why was it not possible for him to be held by death? And there's what he says in verse 25, because the Old Testament scripture tells us that he had to rise again. Scripture must stand. It will stand forever. That's what he says in verse 25 for David, because David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. That's the word for the grave. You're not going to abandon my soul to the grave. Or let your holy one, your anointed one, your chosen one, see corruption. 
You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter argues, it's a beautiful argument. He says, brothers, this can't be talking about David. David says this, but it's obvious it's not talking about David. Why? Because he died and was buried and his tomb is still with us. You can go see it. He's still dead. So this promise is obviously not for him, but David, knowing the promise that God had given him, that he would sit one of his descendants on the throne, David knowing what God had promised him in 2 Samuel 7, David knowing this, and being a prophet for seeing this day, he spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Get this, he's, he's telling Israel, he said, you should have expected the resurrection You should have expected it. It was right there in your scriptures. This can't be talking about David, can it? Who is he talking about? He must be talking about the one to come. He must be talking about the greater Lord, the greater King. Indeed, when Jesus meets with the disciples after he has risen from the dead, before he has ascended, in Luke chapter 24, he opens up the scriptures and he says, this is what the scriptures talked about, about my death and my resurrection. The scriptures point to me and my resurrection, he says. And this is Psalm 16 where we see that, one of the places we see that. God has made him, here's the message of the kingdom. God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. He attested to this fact by many mighty works in their presence. He, by his sovereign will, delivered Christ over. They, by their sinful choice, crucified and killed him, but God, God raised him up just as the scriptures foretold. He was resurrected, proving that he indeed was that king. But that is not it. That is not all. Look at verse number 20, or look at verse number 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Again, he references the gift of the Holy Spirit being given, the pouring out of the Spirit that they are witnessing. He says this is proof. This is proof that Jesus has, not only has he been raised up from the dead, he has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. As Psalm 110 says, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, Have you ever seen that reference before? The Lord, there in Psalm 110, it's the Lord, Yahweh, saying to my Lord. David saying to my Lord, the one who is greater than me. Yahweh says to my king, David is saying. Yahweh is saying to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Peter is saying, the pouring out of the Spirit is a proof to us that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father and that He is there in power and authority. And God is acting to make Him King and Lord. The next, the next event on the timeline of events, and He hints at this in Psalm 110, is the judgment that is coming upon the enemies of the king. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God hath made him both Lord and Christ. And then look at what he says. Do you see this here? He has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Israel had the expectation that a kingdom was coming, that God would rule over his people by mediating through his king, his chosen king. He would rule over his people and that that people would fill the earth. And Peter is saying, your king has come. He was attested to you. He was delivered over by God's sovereign will. He was raised up from the dead. He has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. This Jesus, He has made both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified. Whom you killed. So, so look, at, look, at the, look at the juxtaposition of these passages. He is exalted to the right hand of God. Jesus, you're seeing the evidence of this being poured out in the Spirit. He says, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, until I subjugate your enemies to you. And in the very next verse, he says, you're the one. You're the people that crucified him. You're his enemies. You're the ones who have judgment coming upon you. You're the ones. You who were the expecting people of God. You who expected a king to come. He came and you rejected him. He was proven to you who he was and you rejected him. Wow. The message of the kingdom is that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. And this reality has some implications for them. Do you see their do you see that they get it there in verse number 37? Do you see that they understand the weight of what he is saying to them? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Do you ever read the Bible and you just like don't read the feeling and emotion and tone in the Bible? Do you ever read, do you ever do your Bible reading and you're just reading through in your Acts chapter 2? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, you know, it's like, oh, oh, oh. no, see, if you, if you actually understand what's happening, I would encourage you, read it out loud to yourself. Read it out loud to yourself. Do, do you think this was just a quiet question? Um, Peter, um, what shall we do? No. What Peter has just told them what Peter has just told them is that their king has come, the king that they had been waiting for. And it was proven to them who he was. They knew who he was. And they crucified him. But God raised him up and God exalted him to the right hand of the Father until he makes his enemies his footstool. Know for certain, Israel, this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. And their response. What shall we do? What is there to do? What, what do you say if you're Peter in that moment? What do you mean what is there to do? I just told you what you did. He came. You had your chance. You had your opportunity. It couldn't have been clearer. What do you mean, what is there to do? 
It's done. <laughs> it's done. You had your chance. And you killed him. You crucified him. And God has risen him from the dead and exalted him to the right hand of the Father until he makes his enemies his footstool and you are those enemies and judgment's coming. I am thankful that that was not that was not what Peter said. Here we have the implications of the message. What are the implications of the message? Jesus has been declared both Lord and Christ. What are the implications of this message then? The implication of this message is that we stand guilty before him. Israel had an expectation of a king who would come and rule in God's power. God would rule over his people through his king. And when Jesus shows up, there were many who believed themselves to be worthy of that kingdom. Remember, we went through the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus says to them, he says, unless your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless, unless your righteousness exceed the most righteous ones in Israel, you will not go into the kingdom. So the question is, who then goes into the kingdom? No one. All of us are disqualified by our sin. The message of the kingdom then is one of judgment for sinners. It's one of guilt. But, but this is the amazing thing. God has given His King to rule over His people and, and yet He found no people worthy to rule over. The king has come and he finds no one upon the entire earth worthy of his kingdom. He finds no one righteous. No, not one. No one acts wisely. No one does good. Who will populate his kingdom? No one is worthy. Everyone is guilty. Exemplified most glaringly in the reception of Israel. If anyone would receive the king, it would be Israel and they crucified him. Who's going into the kingdom? No one. And this is the glorious thing that God has done. God has sent his king who finds no one righteous upon the earth, no one who can go into his kingdom. And so the king takes his righteousness and the king gives his righteousness to people. He takes their sin upon himself. He takes their guilt upon himself. He takes their unworthiness upon himself. He takes their sin upon himself. And he is judged for the sin of mankind. He is judged for sin. And in exchange, he gives righteousness to those who would have his righteousness. He says, I will make a people for my kingdom by taking their sin upon myself and by giving them my righteousness so they can be fit for my kingdom. 
What makes us fit for his kingdom? Not my righteousness. Not your righteousness. What makes us fit for his kingdom? It is his righteousness upon us that makes us fit for his kingdom. That he has given us by his grace. By his mercy upon us. Jesus, the king, is making a people for himself. And he accomplishes this by exchanging his righteousness for our sin. Has there been, has there ever been a sin so heinous and so vile and so perverted and so twisted than what was committed against Jesus in the cross? Has there ever been a greater sin that has been committed than the one that the people of Israel committed when they crucified the Lord of life? And yet, we see that there is hope. Do you see this? There is hope for forgiveness even for these people. And if there is hope for their forgiveness, there is hope for our forgiveness. You say, well, I didn't crucify Jesus. Yes, you did. So did I. These men here that he is preaching to, they didn't put hands on him either, and yet they stand guilty of his rejection. You see, sin, all sin, is a rejection of God's rightful authority over your life. All sin is a rejection of God's authority. And by extension, it is a rejection of the authority of his king, the one who he's given all authority to. All sin, this is what I'm saying, and I stand by it. All sin, all sin is a rejection of Jesus and his authority, his rightful authority over your life. All sin, all sin at its root finds itself in this same attitude that crucified him, that rejected him. All sin. So you sit here this morning, you are not guiltless, you are not innocent. You yourself have partaken. You yourself have participated in the rejection of God and of His King. And if you were standing there, you too would have assented to His crucifixion. It's important that we see that because this message is for us. He says, God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, whom you crucified. And I crucified. Our, our response should be the same. Brothers, what should we do? What should we do? And I'm thankful that Peter doesn't say, you've had your chance, it's over. All you can expect is judgment. No, that's not what Peter says. Peter gives them a response. And here, I want you to see this response. The message of the kingdom is that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. The implication is that we are guilty, that no one can go into that kingdom. We all stand to be judged by the king, and yet he has given us his righteousness, if we will have it, for our sin. He has exchanged his righteousness for our sin. 
There is a response, a rightful response, an appropriate response to this message of the kingdom. And here it is. This is what he tells them. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the response. Repent and be baptized in his name. Repent. Repent of what? Repent of your sin. Turn from your sin. I, I, am, I am alarmed that in the Christian message, the gospel message today, quote unquote, what's called the gospel message today, there is very often not a call to repentance. The Bible makes it clear the appropriate response to the king is to respond in repentance, with repentance. Turn from your sin. In your sin, you have rejected God's authority. You have rejected the king's authority. In your sin, you are guilty of rejecting him. Turn from that sin. To the people standing before Peter that day, he's saying, Jesus is both Lord and Christ. You've rejected him. Now turn from that rejection. Turn from that rejection of him. And be baptized in his name. This is one of those passages that so many pastors get nervous. They start breaking out in hives when they preach through it because it's like, well, it doesn't say that you have to be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. Let's let's make sure the word there for four is the word gar, just so I can prove to you that I know Greek. So gar, and everybody, man, people want to make gymnastic moves to get out of what this is saying. There is a great fear, and has been since, um, you know, since the Reformation. There is a great fear that we would be Catholic. We got to not be Catholic. So we know the Catholics say you have to be baptized to merit grace. We don't believe that. But in, in, in trying to make sure that we're not Catholic, what we've done is we've gone so far as to undermine the importance of baptism. And almost tag it on as an extra, just kind of a negotiable thing. Let me make this clear. Hear this. Baptism, that is being immersed in water, does not save anyone. The act of being baptized does not save you. Are we clear on that? However, in the Bible, baptism is the biblical way of professing repentance and faith in Christ. This is the biblical communication. It's a communicative act. It's a way of communicating. That's what baptism is. Baptism is communication. When you are baptized, you are communicating to the world. I am turning from my sin. I am turning from what I used to trust in. I am turning in my, in my sin and rejection of Jesus, I am turning to Jesus. And I am I, I, aligning myself with him. I am declaring my allegiance to him as Lord and Savior. Baptism is a communicative act. You know, Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you ever thought about that passage? Some people think, well, that means you've got to pray a prayer and then believe in your heart. No. 
No, we've substituted praying a prayer for this wonderful, wonderful act of baptism. Okay? Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? There needs to be a public, a public acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord. And an internal belief that God has raised him from the dead. Public confession. And why? Because in this day here that Peter is in, it was going to cost you everything to be identified with Jesus. It was going to cost you everything. And in many places, in, in the majority of places around the world today, if you place your faith in Christ and you are baptized in his name, it will cost you potentially everything. You see, baptism, baptism is not a light matter. In fact, this is what Peter says to do. Repent of your sin. Turn from your sin. And publicly confess Christ as your Lord. Because God has publicly declared him to be the Lord. And you should publicly recognize him as Lord. And he says, if you will repent, be baptized, he will forgive you. Now again, we do not teach baptismal regeneration. That's a fancy term to mean you're not saved because you get into water. But it is this, there is this truth that we are to make him Lord. You've heard the saying, if he is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all of your life. And I am afraid that so much in our Christian culture, in our Christian nationalistic culture, we have this idea that we can kind of pay lip service to Jesus as the king and yet have nothing in our life match our profession. That, that is not salvation. Turn from your sin and be baptized. Be aligned. Give your allegiance to Christ. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of sins. And again, I, I don't want to miss this. Is there a sin that could be more heinous than the crucifixion of the Lord of life? No. Is there a sin? Is there a sin worse than this one that we see before us? The crucifixion of Jesus? No. And yet the offer of forgiveness is extended to these people. There is not a sin that you can commit that cannot be forgiven. Sometimes people say, I, I don't know, maybe I've committed the unforgivable sin. Do you know what the unforgivable sin is? The unforgivable sin is seeing what is declared about Jesus. Seeing the Holy Spirit's declaration of who Jesus is and rejecting the truth of Jesus. That's the unforgivable sin. Rejecting Jesus. That's unforgivable. Do you see how that works? You can't be forgiven if you reject Jesus. So receive Christ and you can be forgiven of everything. He says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here you will be marked as God's people. Jesus, his mission is to make a kingdom, to populate his kingdom with people. And he is marking people by the Holy Spirit who are members of his kingdom. He says, you will 
Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will be marked as his own. For, he says, the promise, this is glorious. Look at this. For the promise is for you, Israel. The promise is for you, Israel. That's who he's talking to. The promise is for you and for your children. And, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. It's for you and for your children and for all who are far off. You see the global nature of this kingdom. The promise of the Holy Spirit It's for you, Israel, and it's for your children, and it's for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he preached a longer sermon, actually, than we have before us. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, here's the the gist of what he was calling them to do, save yourselves from this crooked generation. In other words, what he's calling them to do will not be the choice of the majority of Israel. And it will not be the choice of the majority of the world. Save yourself from this crooked generation who will incur, who will experience God's judgment. Save yourself. How do you save yourself? Turn from your rejection of Jesus. Turn from your sin and align yourself with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And you will be forgiven. You will be saved. Look at what happens there the very last part of this sermon or the the summary of it there in verse 41. So those who received his word were what? were baptized. Those who received his word, those who believed what he said, those who believed that they could have forgiveness in Jesus' name, those who received his word about who Jesus is and about the forgiveness that he offers, those who received his word were baptized, again, communicating their faith in Christ. Baptism is that biblical way to profess repentance and faith in Christ. They received his word and were baptized and there were added. Remember how many we started with? How many people would we start with in Acts chapter 1? 120. But here he proclaims the message of the kingdom that Jesus has been made both Lord and Christ, that they are all guilty before God, but that he offers them forgiveness if they will repent of their sin and be baptized in his name. They will be forgiven and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's for them. It's for all their children. It's for those who are far off. It's for everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. They received that word and were baptized in the name of Jesus. And that day, they were added 3,000 members to that church. Now there's 3,120. Their belief demonstrated itself with public profession. And they were added to the number of the church. What are we to respond or how are we to respond to this message this morning? I began with... This simple idea of what what do we put our hope in? What is it that 
holds our affections? What do we get excited about? What thrills us? What, what is it that is the source of our despair and grief and sadness? What is it that causes you to be sad? These are all questions that help point to what you are treasuring, what your heart is treasuring, and, and what your kingdom functionally is. You know, we, we can make this statement theologically, Jesus is king and he's on the throne and Jesus is establishing his kingdom. I believe that to be true and yet functionally we are putting our hope in another kingdom. And yet God is so gracious for his people to do this work. Here's what he does. He knows, he knows that our hopes and our treasures are still in this world. He knows that. He calls us to put our hope in Jesus and in his kingdom. He calls us to that. But then he, he doesn't just leave it at that. He actually works in our life to rip away these things that we hope in. He, he works in our life to kind of rip away, rip our hearts open. These things that we love, these things that we put our hopes in, he takes them away from us to expose to us that our hope is false in this earthly kingdom and to grow us, to change us, to help us put our hope in the true king and in the true kingdom. And he's in that process, working that process out in your life right now. Your aches and your worries and your fears and your pains, all of these things, these these are all God's grace in your life working to change your affections for His kingdom, for His King, to rescue you from the kingdom of men. What is your view of the kingdom? What are you living for? What is shaping your affections? What's your life wrapped around? We all know, right, our life should be about Jesus the King. But we also all know that it is not the way that it should be. That's what we want. We want our life to be about Jesus. Jeremy mentioned earlier, Ron Carter passed away last night. He actually had a heart attack on Tuesday evening and, and was brain damaged and mercifully the Lord took him home last night. I couldn't help but thinking as I was laying in bed last night, thinking about Ron. We used to sit at the diner and have fellowship together and I would, I would give Ron a hard time about a lot of things. He's a good friend. But I was thinking about that um, last night, his passing. And I just thought, you know, I'm going to pass away. And, and what is it what is it that I want others to say about me when I pass away? Do I want them to talk about how good of a guy I was? Do I want them to talk about how great of a father I was and how great of a husband I was? Do I want them to talk about all the things that I, I added to the world while I was here? No. That's not what I want. That's not what I want. I want people to say his life was about Jesus his life was all about the kingdom of God. And that's why he lived the way he lived. And that's what came out of his life was the value and worth of Jesus beyond all things. 
It was convicting to me. Because I, I got to tell you, I, if I died today and you had my funeral this week, I don't know that that's what people would say about me. I don't know that that's what they would say. He lived for the kingdom of God. He lived for the King Jesus himself. And that was evident in everything he did. Our lives should be wrapped around Jesus. Around his kingdom. And our understanding of his kingdom, our understanding of him as king, this actually defines for us our role in this world. What is your purpose in this life? What is your role in this world? As a believer in Christ, as a member of his kingdom, your role in this world is to proclaim the truth of who Jesus is. And how do we do that? What is the message? The message is that God has declared him both Lord and Christ. The message is, is one of proclaiming guilt, the guilt of man, the sin of man. When's the last time you had a conversation of repentance with your friend? I asked last week, when's the last time you mentioned judgment in in talking with someone about the gospel? When's the last time you told them that they needed to repent? This is a loving thing to do. It was loving for Peter to preach that message to these that day. And look at the response. Look at, look, at, look at what the Word does. They were cut to the heart. They knew it was true. And they said, brothers, what shall we do? And that's where we get the opportunity to say, this is what you do. Turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ alone. As Lord and Savior. And you will be forgiven. And you will be given His mark of the Holy Spirit. And you will be His people. This promise is for you and for all that He calls unto Himself. You say, how do I get into a conversation like that? You tell me, Paul, I should be proclaiming the truth of who Jesus Christ is, but I don't even know how to get into that conversation. I don't even know how to start that conversation. Well, I I gave you an evidence of how to do that even at the beginning of the message. Did you know that you can actually take the conversations about politics and you can turn them to be about things that really matter? Just ask your friend, where do you think everything is headed? What do you think is the hope for the whole world? What do you think... What do you think is coming in the future? And they get an opportunity to tell you what they think. And you get an opportunity to tell them what you think. And you you get into a gospel opportunity. Because all of us, all of us have a hopeful expectation for the future. Every human heart beats longing for a kingdom, longing for someone to come, longing for something to change. And your friends and your family members are the same. They want answers to life's problems. They want answers to life's trials. They they want someone to fix it. Talk to them about that and where their hopes are. Show them who God has declared to be both Lord and Christ and where true hope is found. Tell them the truth about Jesus and their sin and their need for Christ's forgiveness. And the Word of God can and will do its work 
You know, it's not up to you. You don't have to do the work. It's not about how good you are at it. Just let the Word of God do its work. And as we read earlier in our singing, did you see what we were singing earlier? Mine are days here as a stranger, pilgrim on a narrow way. One with Christ I will encounter harm and hatred for his name. But mine is armor for this battle, strong enough to last the war. And he has said he will deliver safely to the golden shore. And mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the king I walk. For there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Come rejoice now, O my soul. For his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. Father, we thank you for this word that we've heard today. Thank you for revealing to us what you have done, what you have accomplished. You have made Jesus both Lord and Christ. It's proven by the many mighty works he did. It is proven by the fact that you have raised him up. It is proven by the fact that you have exalted him to your right hand and poured out your spirit upon your people. It is proven that you have made him both Lord and Christ. And we all stand guilty of sin before him. But in your mercy and in your grace, you have done a wondrous thing. You have exchanged His righteousness for our sin. You have offered us His righteousness. He has taken our sin. And if we will repent of our sin, turn from our sin, and be aligned with Him, receive Him as Lord and Savior, you have promised forgiveness, full and total forgiveness, even for a sin as heinous as crucifying the Lord. I pray that you would embolden us for this life that you have called us to as your kingdom people. That you would embolden our witness and you would give us confidence in your word and the work of your word. And that you would make us ready as we encounter that rejection and opposition for the sake of your name. And that we would faithfully declare the truth of who Jesus is. That we would declare repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations starting in our own neighborhoods, in our own families. We pray this in your name for your glory. Amen.